0: Hello and welcome to the Ori Spotlight Podcast. We're talking to leaders across the cell and gene therapy industry and telling you more about Ori's mission to manufacture brighter futures. I'm Jason Foster, the CEO of Ori Biotech, and I'll be your host for today's podcast. Hello and welcome to the Ori Spotlight Podcast. This is your host, Jason Foster. This week, I have Jonathan Hay as my guest. Jonathan is a partner at Dillon Ventures and also a board member at
1: Ori. Welcome, Jonathan. Thank you, Jason. Thanks a lot uh, for having me. Really, really a pleasure and look forward to the discussion. Well, thanks for joining me and it's great to uh, to have a chance to
0: discuss the advanced therapies sector with you. I know you've gotten very deep uh, in this space over the last several years and and the fund generally has quite a, a broad interest in cell uh, intelligent therapy and advanced therapies. I'd like to start there if you don't mind telling us a little bit more about Dylan, your focus uh, personally and and uh, across the fund and what kinds of things uh, are most interesting to you guys in, in the advanced therapy sector today
1: sure yeah happy to happy to do that we founded the fund together with my partner uh, eager Lynchitz about seven years ago um, with a lot of advice from uh, Christopher spray who was one of the founders of, of Atlas ventures mm-hmm. and he's been he's been with us all that period we, we really started with a focus more on technology, so we were investing in software businesses a little bit in semiconductors. Mm-hmm. Um, but over the last four years, we really we really made the shift into biotech and healthcare related investments, driven by you know where we saw an opportunity to to differentiate ourselves, I think, and where where also we just felt we could have more impact on mm-hmm. the world. I mean, that's a big part of our internal internal yeah. DNA, and. Um, you know, company's got a very, a very entrepreneurial focus related to the background of its founder, um, and we thought there was a good fit with that in the biotech sector, where there's a, a lack of what I would call entrepreneurial capital, and I think that's maybe where we're a bit different from uh, from some of the other uh, investors in the space. Mm-hmm. In terms of what we focus on, it's really, it's really early stage life science, I would say. You know, with some, with some areas that we're particularly interested in. One of those is really autologous cell therapies, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, Ori's been a, a real kind of pathfinder invest, investment for us in terms of exploring that space. Um, so we're 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 looking at a lot more things, and I'm sure we'll t- we'll talk a little bit more about it in terms of what's going on. In terms of what kind of investments we make, we, we uh, you know we like we'll, we can do seed investments um, like we did in Ori. We can also partner with entrepreneurs and uh, work in much more of a partnership model. Mm-hmm. And and increasingly, we're starting to to build companies ourselves. So with ideas, as we learn more about a sector, we get more confidence to to try and create something ourselves right. and begin to uh, assemble the components to build a company from scratch.
0: Mm. Yeah, company creations. A little bit different than straight kind of investing and an interesting area to, for us to talk about, I think, moving forward. Yeah, yeah. Um, obviously, yeah. you know that Ori uh, has closed at Series B, uh, participated in that, uh, and you've been with us on the journey for several years now, having led our seed round uh, in 2019. Um, I'm interested in your view of kind of the Ori opportunity, you know, maybe looking back at, at sort of what was, compelling to to lead the round in 2019, but also how it's developed over time, particularly in the context of how you see cell and gene therapy developing. I think, you know, we see the world very similarly in how we think the industry might evolve and the desire to bring these products to patients more quickly at a much lower cost, uh, potentially even, you know, leading to manufacturing, you know, closer to the patient rather than in the centralized models today. I'm, I'm curious what you know, if you hearken back to, to the first investment in Ori and then how it's continued to evolve,
1: you know, what are the key things you think that we're doing that's, that's most interesting for the industry? You know, I'd say if I look back, we were trying to figure out how to invest in cell and gene therapy. And, you know, there's so much going on in this space. It's, it's an industry, it's the kind of industry we like because we like to go into industries where there's still lots of debates about business mm-hmm. model, lots of different debates about which technology is right and it's much easier for an upstart like ourselves to find some novel approach Mm -hmm. but we got frustrated really early because we couldn't really figure out how to invest in therapeutics there were so many alternatives Mm -hmm. that we started to look for how can we invest in this industry and and how can we invest in something that's solving like a fundamental problem for the industry yeah and that led to, to thinking about manufacturing and i can remember googling around and trying to find you know, googling automated cell manufacturing and finding these pictures of what Farland taught me to call our our, our mini oil refineries, right? <laughs> <laughs> right, right.
0: And Lots I of re- tubes
1: and pumps and all kinds of stuff. Yeah, exactly. And I remember getting kind of depressed that I I couldn't really find anything. And then and then we met Farland and met Ori and got the taste of his vision with a really, you know, really kind of rethinking from the very beginning what technology would really fit the needs of this market in terms of being able to manufacture at scale, being able to create consistent process, being able to generate the types of data that would, would enable you to, to, to follow what's going on at different stages of development and, and do trials in different locations Mm -hmm. and so on and so forth. So I think, I think that vision is what really caught us. And I, you know, I think you've executed on it, on it beautifully. And, uh, you know, I think that we're, we're excited about solving, about working with you and and, and looking at, at other ways we can contribute to solving the problem of access to cell therapy. Yeah. And I think that's really what it's all about now.
0: Well, I think our, our shared kind of vision for the future and, and the mission of Ori resonates with you uh, as an investor as well as, you know, could being seeking to enable widespread patient access. I mean, you talked about your your desire as a fund to have an impact, positive impact. And clearly it's, you know, as I call it, an untenable outcome to have cures for cancer that, that patients can't get access to. And your intent as a fund to have an impact, you know, really invest in areas that can have a positive impact is clearly, you know, well aligned uh, with what we're trying to do. And, you know, interestingly, it's this it's this dichotomy of mass- personalization, being able to bring personalized precision medicines to many patients at once and to tackle what are fundamentally new challenges for the industry, you know, starting with patient material as your input into your process is something that's totally new. It's done; It's been done kind of in a boutique format in transplantation or regenerative medicine at the hospital level, maybe one patient or two patients a year, you know, very, very small volume. Um, but how do we do that in, in a mass way, in an in a industrialized way? And this is part of our you know mutual shared interest. And I think you know when we partnered with Delin in 2019, the various pieces of the puzzle, you, you mentioned Christopher Spray, who's you know been a longtime investor. you know you've got other yourself, you know, Igor being an entrepreneur himself, you know, people like Lev and Alan Barge, who've worked in either pharma or invested in therapeutics, bring some of those pieces together to say, well, we need a lot of different disciplines and a lot of different ways of thinking in order to try and do this. You know, this isn't sort of uh, another, you know, fintech play or another, you know, where you're just kind of rinse, repeat, do something better. So I think that that's a little bit unique is that your model is really about trying to bring some of that expertise, some of that value, some of that operational side of the house uh, in really, what could be into tra- what could be transformative uh, technologies and companies is it, is that? Am I articulating the the USP right? That's been my experience, but I, I wonder if that's the
1: in the intent. Yeah. yeah, no, no, no. Thank you. Um, I'm glad uh, if we've made it, um, an impression uh, <laughs> that we're trying to bring different expertise to the table because that certainly is our our intention and to to have the people around who are you know specialists in their areas and can make their contribution because I think. The, the area you're you're in we're working in together obviously involves many many disciplines and we need to be able to to look at it from different perspectives and uh, it's re- it's really kind of goes back to this issue too of, of the ecosystem yes you know that that needs to come into place to make to make this happen and to create access indeed yeah and it's multidisciplinary
0: and I know in the early days we talked a lot about you know data platforms and you know, analytics and AI ML and how that could be brought into. And, you know, really wasn't even in the conversation, uh, in selling gene, you know, two years ago, Uh, but we started talking about it then and, you know, have built that into a fundamental part of the Ori platform, um, which is exciting, you know, trying to bring those disciplines from other areas. And, and I'm guessing, you know, the, one of the questions I had for you is, you know, what is unique about the investment model? And I guess it's really that, and it's really sort of bringing, Bringing those disciplines to bear, um, and and what most excited, what is most exciting outside of what you've seen with Ori, you know, what's most exciting you about the opportunities for innovation in the sector?
1: In the sector, I guess you know, there's so much going on, and I think you know, my colleagues, you mentioned some of them, Alan Barge and Lef Left, uh, and Natalia Novak. They they will they know a lot more about what's going on in the therapeutic side than than I do, um, and would be. Uh, you know, would probably all have their favorite um, innovations that are in the pipeline. But for you know, for me, it's it's innovations around the 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 concept of access. So I, I think it's access, and, and but it's access on multiple dimensions. You know, it's it's financial access. It's it's access to product, so that product is available for people. It's, uh, you know, access at the optimal stage of treatment. You know, if it should be a first-line therapy, then, you know, the quicker we can get it there and get the cost down so it's competitive with what's currently mm-hmm. first-line. And then it's access to the innovation, you know, that just the uh, – we, we know that um, these innovations are happening, you know, all over the world in a, much, in a much different way than in the past, you know, that medical centers are taking them much further than – academic medical centers are taking them much further than yes. in the past – so being able to get that to patients. Even at the investigative stage, I think it's very exciting. You know, there's MD Anderson, as you know, is a powerhouse in, uh, in the mm. industry. So many trials going on, so many therapies. It'd be great if those trials, um, you know, could be much more widely available, for example, and there was an infrastructure there to support that. Um, So I'm really excited about that, those kind of innovations around access, which I think ORI um, can, you know, well power Um, the ORI technology and the ORI ecosystem will will power those innovations. And I I suppose on the therapeutic side, I'm interested in the autologous therapies that become much more personalized and precise, Mm. and that then gets to the manufacturing infrastructure again, you know, can we really make very personalized cell therapies um, and solve the you know, solve the the manufacturing challenges that are related to that. I think we can and I think it's happening. It's just we need to push it further and faster. Agreed.
0: Agreed wholeheartedly, as you know, you highlighted a couple of them there, but I wonder if you'd expand on, you know, from your perspective as an investor out there in your travels talking to a lot of people in the ecosystem, you know, what are the key challenges you see? Obviously manufacturing cost of goods are, are large ones I wonder what other what other challenges that you see that, you know, maybe innovators are already trying to solve or are unaddressed, you know, at this
1: point. Yeah, and the, the, obviously the, the cost of goods is a big one. I think another big one is just the the friction from the breakthrough stage to the kind of drug development stage, mm-hmm. if you will. You know, how do you get from the innovator into a drug development pipeline or a flow Um, That moves to the possibility for a scalable therapy. So I think I think kind of where we need to get to in the industry is to a much earlier adopt adoption of technologies like Ori at the research phase so that um, that data can translate more quickly into a drug development. A tip, you know, a drug development pipeline and and into trials that can be multi-site and get to approvals faster and and with, you know, repeatable data and, and so forth. Yeah. So I think it's that friction in the process that's that's too high and we need to address yeah. that.
0: I had this conversation with both um, John Connolly at, at Pisces, who we recently um, released the podcast with, and, and also Isabel Riviere. Uh, who's a, a new advisor to Ori, um, who leads manu, uh, manufacturing at, at Sloan Kettering? They both had an interesting thing to say when, in in this part of the discussion. To say, you know, oftentimes the incentives for investigators are different than there would, than they would be for a therapy developer, right? So the, oftentimes, grant money uh, is the lifeblood of any investigator led trial or some of that early work, and. You know, Isabel was really pointed on this, and she said that you know there's often no resources, no funding, and no time to kind of spend earlier in trying to optimize processes and trying to future-proof your manufacturing process because it's always go go go, you know, get into the clinic, enroll patients, fast fast fast, and people don't have the time necessarily or the funds if it's an investigator-led trial um, to focus on the on the process early enough to mm-hmm. front run some of the issues that they know are coming downstream. You know, it's kind of like, we have to put the, the horse before the cart, but as you've articulated, I think if we're able to do our job at Ori and to make it easier for investigators to apply their trade, you know, to do their drug discovery work on the platform, then potentially that de-risks that downstream. They don't have to invest a whole bunch of time and money in trying to optimize the process. Um, it will be sort of optimized already because it's able to be administered on the on the platform. I don't know if you. I know you talk to a lot of uh, investigators and and therapy developers out there. Does that gel with kind of what you're hearing and uh, what your experience is?
1: Yeah, com- yeah, c- completely. And I think um, I think the system has to um, you know system has to offer value to the researcher early. Mm-hmm. So I mean, it could be on the data side, for example. You know, if you're linked up with their with their current, you know, framework for keep, keeping track of bench data and automatically goes in, and you're solving a headache mm-hmm. for them. Then I think that's really cool. You know, that's going to help people adopt. I think it probably also is if more of the manufacturing stru- infrastructure and related services are are kind of co-located with some of these academic medical centers. I think having just the proximity of people, will what will cause people to think in an earlier way about about some of these issues and and have the you know, kind of the human capital and specialists Mm -hmm. around to help them more quickly, you know, adopt some of those things. But, but fundamentally, we've got to offer something of value to the researcher. And, uh, you know, I I suspect it's going to be around the data side and around, you know, around the ease of using, um, you know, ease of using the, uh, the equipment and the ability to repeat experiments in a way that, removes variables yeah. right because i think that's the frustrating thing as a researcher is you you're always trying to figure out why did it go wrong and <laughs> in, in this particular case and right in that particular case and the more i've got the the data and feedback and maybe learning from the system to help me decipher that the the you know the more value add i see in the technology yeah
0: 100 percent and that kind of giving a new layer of insights into causality into what's actually happening in the process or, you know, right now, I think investigators often feel like they're flying blind and they're not hundred percent sure why things right. are happening the way they are, uh, and trying to do their best to, to figure out what are those, you know, critical quality attributes or the sort of key things that are driving efficacy downstream or, you know, what they're seeing in the process. But oftentimes they don't have the data they need to, to even make those decisions. Right. So they're making educated guesses, which, you know, hopefully we can improve upon
1: there's so much learning um, researchers can get from other researchers Mm -hmm. too. So if we can find a way to share that data early, you know, and somebody over here is fiddling around with a T cell expansion and they can't get it to work right in their lab or they're getting low yields that they get some insights maybe from somebody else who's fiddling around with something similar with T cells. Um, So if we can find a way to share that data without people being concerned about, you know, their proprietary stuff, then uh, that would be huge. Exactly. And to the point you raised about
0: kind of time to market and, you know, is shaving off six months or a year in process development where we can help, you know, accelerate that. We can run things in parallel. We can share, you know, sort of aggregate the data, allow for those insights to be derived more quickly. And then maybe you're able to recruit patients faster because you can do it at multiple sites and that shaves a year or two. And then you might be, you can. You know, tech transfer doesn't take six months any longer any longer. It takes six weeks. And then, you know, the regulatory package is there. You know, if you add all those kind of time savings up, potentially what's what's weird. now a ten year process or or even longer, you know, is something much less than that. You know, if we can shave three years or four years off the process, wow, that's a huge savings for for companies and the investments they need to make and an unbelievable outcome for patients who might not have had. An option, but that option might come to market much more quickly. So ultimately, you know, therein lies the impact we're all trying to have: is to ultimately get these products to patients uh, much more quickly and much more affordably.
1: Yeah, I t- totally agree, and I think we're, you know, we're at that stage in the industry where I, th- I think you said it earlier: it's it's moving from the cottage industry to sort of the industrialization phase, mm-hmm. if you will. And you know, can we can we do that and get all those efficiencies that you were just talking about? Um, to, to do things more quickly. Exactly. And,
0: you know, you'll have seen some recent guidance from the FDA last week um, to go along with some guidance that the MHRA from the UK put out last year, very similar kind of asking the industry for comment around, you know, what does good look like? How should we be moving the industry forward? You know, think topics such as decentralized manufacturing recovered there. You know, what, are you, what is your thought on on some of these elements that may or may not need to evolve? You know, where do you see the innovation needing to come from? What are the low hanging fruit uh, from your perspective? And knowing that you know we don't have all the pieces in place yet, but it seems as though you know there's some common threads you know uh, around the world in the industry of where we think we want to get to.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Really good. Good, good, good question. I guess, I guess for me, and, and, you know, i I'm constantly trying to get feedback from others on this in terms of where, where can you add value quickly to be able to make progress quickly and, and get people to buy into, you know, buy into the vision here. I am very, you know, I was, you mentioned the regulatory, um, the regulatory stuff. I am very pleased to see that, um, you know, the FDA put out that guidance, which explicitly talks about Mm multi-site manufacturing. Um, So that, that clearly is in the thinking now. and, And you mentioned the MHRI guidance as well, talking about point of care manufacturing. So, so clearly the regulators are moving in that direction and, you know, in in, in some countries, I, I think in in Holland, for example, they've gone you know they've gone even further in terms of really um, you know encouraging the use of the uh, you know therapies that are that are still in investi- investigator led trials because they're locally manufactured. I think that in terms of low hanging fruit, I think it's it's probably in finding in finding a way to install the sort of minimal platform that gets by in in multiple locations mm-hmm. and getting the data and and allowing people to see the benefits of the data that's generated generated in multiple locations where you're measuring the same things you're measuring the same things that go in, the same things that come out, measuring the processes as, as it goes along and being able to learn from that. And I think the effect of that will be so powerful when it happens that that will generate a lot of further thoughts about, oh, why, oh we could mm. do this or we could do that. And, you know, I, I d- then it will start to take a life of its own. So I'm, I'm really excited to see you guys moving in that direction and, you know, the interactions you guys have been having. But I think that's where the low hanging fruit yeah. is. Yeah, we we had a conversation.
0: It's probably last week now with a gentleman called Boro Tripulich from Caring Cross, and they had he'd published uh, some work that they had done, essentially doing that. You know, a, a parallel trial. I think it was in Moscow actually, and in Cleveland, if I remember correctly, demonstrating that if they put the same inputs in and they run the same process, they get the same outputs out, pretty much. Um, and you know, being able to demonstrate, we're on the track to demonstrate a similar thing with some of Ori's partners, it's, you know, multi-site, maybe East Coast and West Coast of the US, or, you know, maybe even in Europe as well, and then one in the US, just demonstrate that we can do this. You know, today, a multi-site trial in advanced therapies is almost unthinkable, um, you know, It's just too hard to pull off, but... That's where we have to start, as you said. We have to generate that data, show it's possible, uh, and then show we can do it in a repeatable, reliable, you know, safe and high quality way. But that kind of methodology isn't beyond our reach, I don't think. I think we're we're moving fast in that direction.
1: Yeah, I, I agree. I think we're I think we're near it and, and um, you're near to doing that. And I, I I think it's just a matter of proving it, because I'm sure you know you know if you talk to people about doing that, many people say it's. It's, it's you know it's that's not right. going to happen. It's too complicated. You can't even do it in one location. How could we do it in two or three or four right. or five? Um, but but in fact, I guess you just have to do it and and measure and show that it can be done. And then I think the other thing that will happen is once that you know once that's been shown to be possible. And you, you mentioned um, the, the the paper. I I think you sent it to me, and I did I did look at it. It's great. You know, great great example. Um, but as that's shown, then people are going to start thinking, "Oh yeah, okay, so I guess it does work." But maybe we should measure this, and maybe mm-hmm. we should measure that, and and then people will start thinking differently when they design therapies as well about what 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 how should they be thinking about design so that they can measure the right things in multiple sites, and then I think you'll see a lot of improvements uh, come quickly in terms of the multi-site yeah. model. Yeah, no,
0: it's a great it's a great segue to the kind of the next point I wanted to ask you about, which is you know the. We've been celebrating the small wins, as any industry that's you know nascent or relatively early in its development should. You know the uh, product entering a clinical trial, an IND or NDA submission. You know these things are are to be celebrated. Uh, and we've had you know in the last couple of years we've had you know several approvals of additional CAR T products. The first you know BCMA product. The first products in multiple myeloma so these are milestones for the industry for sure um i guess you know at some point we have to stop crawling and start walking and then stop walk start you know stop walking and start running you know what are the right benchmarks you know as we look forward you know my concern which i've articulated several times on this podcast is that we can't just rest on our laurels there you know this this the measuring stick that i think should be the benchmark of success is how many patients are successfully treated, and that should be the the thing that we hold ourselves accountable to. Um, but I wonder what you know what your thought is. It's non it's maybe non traditional. I think you know oftentimes the in the therapeutics world, uh, you know, people celebrate clinical, the first clinical trial enrollment. That's a press release and an IND submission. That's a press release. And um, but I think we're at the point where we need to be able to prove that we can allow patients or access to these therapies and really generate. Uh, a market access success and a commercial success, where we are able to treat large numbers of patients.
1: Yeah, I, I agree with that. I like your I like your benchmark about number of people treated, and I think it you know be worth kind of developing that thought further, and maybe thinking about some other some other kind of related benchmarks. I mean, you could look at you know in, in terms of getting innovation to market. I think the benchmark might be you know how many people are clinically eligible for treatment. Mm. And then we look at of those who are eligible, how many actually did get access. So we've got both because access, I think, is both about getting the stuff to market, and then it's you know making sure the product is available for people financially available, geographically available, um, whatever whatever availability means. Um, so we we probably need we probably need to do a little report card for the mm-hmm. industry, I think, and, and figure out uh, what those numbers are. Probably need a number a metric related to you know sort of academic breakthrough to mm-hmm. approval. How are we how are we doing on that? And then approval to scale mm-hmm. therapy. Um, so I think there are probably a few there, but at the end of the day they're all about how many how well did we do in terms of actually getting them to the patients who yeah. need them. It's just different ways of looking at I mean that. You, you probably wouldn't be surprised. I'm gonna say you'd be
0: surprised at how hard it is to even find the denominator of that equation. You know, how many patients are how many <laughs> patients are eligible to get CAR T therapy. In this case, we did a bit of a bit of research in trying to to find this, find the answer to this question, at least you know to some extent. That's data backed with data, and we found a couple of reports. One from McKinsey, you know, sort of, there or maybe up to nine hundred thousand or a million patients that would be eligible for some of the first generation CAR T products, uh, and then we tried to find you know for the numerator, you know, there was. couple different publications that said, well, 2,000 patients have been treated and then in another geography or, you know, holistically doing a meta-analysis, 10,000 patients have been treated, you know, in perpetuity or throughout history in clinical trials. But there's no way, really good way to track either the denominator or the numerator. Uh, I think if we were to do it, uh, you know, from all the evidence we've seen, we'd be uh, pretty depressed about the outcome. I think it's less than 2% of the patients that have, that are eligible, have actually been able to access therapies and I know some of the, our advisors who I quoted that number to uh, were a incredulous that, that it was that low and b and they looked at the numbers said that's incredibly depressing um, you know but I think also we've had some very large indications recently um, approved you know multiple myeloma is a large indication greater than 30,000 patients a year you know the first year of the of of abecma's launch the data suggests they treated 300 patients uh, and in the second year, their ambition is to treat seven hundred, based on their public uh, disclosures. And these are, you know, still less than one percent of the of the patient population that's that's available to them. So, as an industry, I think it's a it's a rational, reasonable discussion for us to have of what success looks like and how we then set ourselves up for success um,
1: moving forward. Um, yeah, I, I agree with that. And I wouldn't, uh, you know, I think just from talking to clinicians um, who sort of, you know, know their areas well, I'm, I'm not surprised that the numbers are quite small in terms of the people who are getting access who, who are technically eligible, let's say, from a clinical point yes, of view.
0: agreed. Um, and I think potentially some of that answers my next question, which is, you know, we see a lot of innovation now. You know, it's, there's a lot of innovation happening in gene therapy on new platforms for you know cells identifying new cell types or new ways to genetically reprogram cells or target them or make them more durable or all those things that we need to do uh, to make really more effective therapeutics um but what would you consider to be kind of true innovation you know when you when you look out there in the world you're talking to therapy developers you're talking to technologists people that are trying to solve problems all along the value chain um what, in your view, is holding us back? You know, we talked about cost of goods certainly, and that's a all-encompassing uh, topic. But is there a mindset shift that needs to happen? Is there, if if you had to highlight one or two things that's really holding the industry back right now, what would you put your finger on uh, to say that where that's where the innovation really needs to be targeted?
1: You know, you could say uh, another CD19 is not innovative mm-hmm. at all, but an, a CD19 that was 10 times cheaper and 10 times more accessible <laughs> would be a true mm. innovation. So I think I think true innovation needs to come in business model. It needs to come, I mean, I mean also on the therapeutic side, but I think there's lots of that happening. There's lots of that, lots of breakthrough innovation happening on the biology side. So I think that's uh, and and it's becoming much more democratized, you know, happening all over the world, all over the world and many, you know, kind of every major academic medical center. If you dig in, you'll start to find really innovative stuff happening on the biology side in terms of cell Mm. therapies with so many new tools coming. So so I'd say but I'd say the innovations really are around how do we make this pragmatically, you know, available for people? What are the technologies needed to Mm. do that? Um, so I think that's a big part of it. I think the use of data is also, you know, a huge part of it. Um, just, you know, ways that we can use data, also ways that we can use data and and data, you know, mining around the biology to figure out what sort of combinations really could be um, used. Because so much stuff is out there and available, but what should we be combining cell therapies with to you know, address the tumor microenvironment, for example, you know, why can't we make faster progress with solid mm-hmm. tumors? You know, we, we know a lot of it is the, is the, um, you know, suppressive effect of the, of the tumor microenvironment on um, the immune mm-hmm. cells. Why, um, you know, there are combinations that can address it. So, I, and I, and I know people are, are doing that, but I, I just, my point is more around mm-hmm. data and and doing it as rationally as possible and looking at, uh, lots of combinations sure. as well, but in a rational
0: way. Yeah, and, and decreasing the kind of cycle times and you know using some of the tools we have available to us. You know, you, th- you see tools like you know advanced analytics, like multivariate analysis or machine learning, being applied in lots of industries, lots of regulated industries, and all kinds of applications. You know, we're still in paper batch records for the most part. It's going to be extremely difficult to. Utilize any tools like that, um, if not impossible, unless we get to a fully digital footprint that we can actually, you know, it's sort of, we we sort of shorthand inside where you say paper is the enemy of scale, you know, the ability to have a 200 page paper batch record being leafed through by a, a QP in Europe to release one product no matter how good your process is up front, you know, you can shorten the cycle times, you can take a 14 day process and cut it down to three and do all kinds of efficiencies there. But if you have to fly it halfway across the world and if you have to have a human being batch release it, you're stuffed because there aren't enough people out there to to do that work. Um, And so this kind of idea where, you know, I think people think about a digital or paperless manufacturing process as a nice to have and it's something that will get to eventually uh, versus something they need to focus on up front. And you know that's one of the things that Kevin, as you know, our chief data officer is working on quite extensively with partners is how do we build a, a paperless manufacturing tech stack that can essentially act as a turnkey uh, foundation for therapy developers to get there right away. Because there's no reason why you have to start in paper. It's just what everyone does because that's what we that's what we're used to. But if we can make
1: it easy to start digitally, then you can get some of these benefits right out of the gate. I I agree with you, and I think that's that again goes back to your comment about the low hanging fruit. But I think that um, we got to you know it's kind of boring in a way to say that we're still using paper and we need to get away from it (laughs) when some other industries have you know done that successfully. So I think, uh, but but you're right. It's absolutely essential. And it's about, uh, you know, getting it all more efficient and getting people out of their silos as well, um, because the digital, you know, world can connect everyone to each other so much more efficiently. So, so I agree that that in itself is a huge innovation. And once people feel the impact of that, they're going to wonder how they did it any other yeah. way. How was it possible? No, it's funny. I mean,
0: yeah. I think those people that have made the move, you know, and and one of the things that always comes up when we talk about some of these issues, like decentralized manufacturing, for example. People say, "What about QA and QC? How are we going to batch release these?" You know, because you're used to having a centralized resource that does that, um, and that's usually the first thing that pops out of people's mouths. Um, but then you talk to people who have actually made the shift. You know, some of the pioneers in the industry who've, who've gone paperless already, and their Q, QA and QC team wouldn't go back. Like, you know, now we can demonstrate it with an immutable record. To a regulator or someone else, exactly what happened, and it's all right here, and we don't have that. You know, you don't have to print out reams and reams and You know, store them in a file cabinet. So we'll get there. I have no doubt about it. But it's really about trying to make it as easy as possible. You know, part of what we view our job at is at Ori is to make it as easy as possible. Turnkey. Let's do the heavy lifting ahead of time. Let's work with the other partners. You know, people like TrackCells, other partners in the ecosystem that are doing their piece of the puzzle well and take some of that integration burden off of our partners, our customers, because yeah. ultimately therapy developers, you know, are they great at software integration? Well, they have probably had to be, but it's not because that's their core competency. You know, they, if we can move away from that, then we can just make that, that lift much lighter and make it much easier uh, to get there. And, and the point you raised, which I think is super interesting, which is also when we talk about, gathering data, structuring it, aggregating it in the cloud, applying analytics, and then delivering back insights to therapy developers, You know the media response is therapy developers don't want to share their data. I say, yep, that traditionally has been the case. I understand that. And we're not sharing their, anyone's data with anyone else. Uh, but if we can deliver valuable insights by having their data in our cloud analytics platform that helps move their process forward by a year or two, I think we can make a value proposition to say it's worth it. And so that's, you know, it's, it's, it's those mindsets, you know,
1: I agree with that. And I, I, you know, agree with that passionately. And I think, you know, we're, we're incubating a company on the therapy side now and there's some huge process challenges. And I just think about, you know, if you could give me some insights, I don't need anyone's data. (laughs) but I need a few insights around some of the things we're doing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if we did it this way, what would, what would your system tell me? That would be hugely valuable, be hugely valuable. And my, you know, my willingness to to share data with you to, to, in return for getting those insights would be, uh, it'd be kind of a no brainer Mm -hmm. from my point of view. So I think, I think there's some, you know, nuances to, to work out in terms of how you share and what you share, but I think it's it's a solvable problem, and there's so much win-win for everyone that um, that it's going to happen. It's just going Richards. to happen. We just have to make it valuable enough uh, to overcome the, the yep. risk aversion, which we all understand. Risk, risk aversion, yeah. exactly. The paranoia
0: <laughs> that people have about caring. Indeed. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's maybe an interesting segue to the next question I had for you, which is really where where do you see the inflection point coming? You know, what is the inflection point do you think that's going to catalyze a shift in the way the industry is thinking about some of these issues? You know, for me, I can imagine, you know, that there was a, a benchmark put out there by Scott Gottlieb and Peter Marks a couple of years ago in a publication saying that their hope is by 2025, the agency is approving 20 to 25 new cell and gene therapies every year. Um, and that, you know, w- we as an industry sort of look at that and say, Oh no, that would be a disaster <laughs> because we wouldn't be able to treat any patients there'd be, you know, each of those therapies be treating, you know, tens of patients and uh, that wouldn't be a good outcome. But, you know, what, what kind of, what do you think will be the inflection point that really helps the industry want to leap forward from here uh, from where we are today?
1: I mean, I think, and and maybe this is a little bit, bit our, our perspective on it at, at Delin, but you know, we think the industry has kind of swung back to, or swung towards, allogeneic therapies, um, which of course are very promising and very exciting, um, but they're not real mm-hmm. yet, and they're probably going to take some time because of the challenges of durability and overcoming uh, immune reaction and so on. And and but it's swung swung away from autologous therapies, but autologous therapies are the ones that have been approved. They're the ones that are the the here and now of of the of the industry. And so I think I think the, the the sort of tipping point, if you will, or the inflection point, will be when we can show that the manufacturing side of that really is scalable in any context, in any indication. But just to show that it's really scalable, we really can solve that problem. I think there'll be a huge tipping point when that happens, and it'll be a tipping point back towards the autologous therapies that are working and the, the the you know the, the the innovation around the world where you have investigator led trials with with similar therapies innovative therapies that are working in people but but there's a lot of skepticism about autologous therapies as being really a solution because of the manufacturing problems. So I I think we need to show that that can be solved in, in one, you know, in some context. And then I think that'll be a a huge inflection point for the industry and a great, you know, great benefit for patients because we'll be able to then take the therapies that are, are working and have proven in humans and be able to really scale them. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that. I mean, I think the, the
0: investment community has, shifted to uh, a massive amount of investment into allogeneic, um, approaches. But if you look at the distribution of kind of clinical trials, it's still a very, very small percentage uh, of the therapies Yeah, right. because we're trying to solve, find a way to solve this manufacturing dilemma. Um, so if we can prove it solvable, exactly. uh, I think you're right. It then sort of smooths out some of the other pieces of the puzzle we're trying to solve for. Um, and I think also the, an area that you know, gets talked about a lot is, you know, genetic reprogramming and viral vector manufacturing and the challenges with that and the expense of that. Being able to see some of these new modalities, you know, call them transfection technologies or others, you know, there's some new electroporation out there. Uh, There's different approaches to that. There's other ways to break down the cell membrane and get the DNA, DNA inside. I think if we're able to to think differently about and maybe higher throughput higher quality more reliable lower cost methods uh, to do the gene the gene editing or the genetic reprogramming that'll be a huge help as well you know we know if we look at the cost of goods for let's say a traditional cart first generation car t product almost let's say a third or 20 25 of the cost is vector you know and the rest is basically labor and other inputs if we can address those simultaneously be a big step forward
1: in trying to get where we want to go. Yeah, I agree with that, and and there's a lot of investment in that in that area. And so we should we should keep our eye on that and be ready to be ready to adopt early if something is is proving um, effective, safe, and and a lot a lot cheaper than than vectors. But vector price is coming down as well since there's a lot of investment in that. So it is. I'm I'm pretty optimistic about that aspect of things becoming, um, you know, becoming quite competitive and there being, you know, multiple ways to do it that are um, safe, efficient and cost effective. Indeed. Yeah. I mean,
0: I think the, we talk about there's multiple ways to to solve some of these problems and we need to kind of <laughs> parallelize the approaches so we can get, you know, yeah. multiple answers to these yeah. questions. So um, we're coming to the, to the hour and I really appreciate your time uh, that you spent with us. One last question I'd like to ask of you is really just to try and, you know, it's, a, it's an easy question. I'm asking you to predict the future. Um, so that should be easy easy for you. Looking, you know, in the five to 10 year time horizon, what what does good look like from your perspective for the industry? This is a question I ask all my guests because it's it's really, I think, interesting to explore, you know, where our ambition is. And I'd be interested, you know, from an investment perspective or from, a you know, an industry uh, stakeholder perspective, what does good look like? Uh, from your perspective for cell and gene within the next kind of five to ten year time
1: frame? Um, I think th- I think in that time frame, success for me would would see the, the ecosystem in place to actually solve the accessibility problem we've been talking about. And that we, we would think of cell therapies sort of the way we think of small molecules and antibodies in terms of accessibility. Yeah. They're just there and we can get them when we need them. That for me would be success.
0: Yeah, yeah 100%. And I think, you know, it's a little bit of a... Right now, it's a, I don't know what the opposite of a virtuous cycle is, a non-virtuous cycle in that, you know, we, we are taking, because these products are so expensive, we're forced to have them be last line therapy and for patients to have failed five or six, four or five different rounds of, of therapy, patients are often very sick. And so by the time they get to the point where they could benefit from a cell therapy they're often at their sickest and their immune cells by definition are at their weakest and therefore probably have the lowest chance of having a good clinical outcome because of that. And so by reversing that point and and to your uh, ambition is if we can drop cost of goods and or move these products much earlier in the treatment pathway because they're affordable, we should be able to improve clinical outcomes and actually improve patients' results because we've got healthier immune cells to use and derive our therapeutic from. Uh, so we should be able to start a, a virtuous cycle from there, where we get better outcomes and more patients are treated, and you know we see better results. And um, you know that would be my sort of offshoot of of your vision. I think ultimately, you know, the ability to treat more patients, absolutely, the ability to access these widely, but also. You know, earlier in the treatment pathway, so we can have you know better clinical outcomes.
1: Yeah, completely, completely agree. And it's it's very interesting that that patients who have had so many lines of treatment yet respond so well in some cases. Um, and you think if that if that could only be done earlier, what would that mean in terms of outcomes? Hundred
0: percent. Well, it's been uh, fantastic chatting with you. I really appreciate you spending some time with us.
1: Yeah, thanks, Jason. Really, really appreciated um, speaking with you today. Thank you for listening to the Ori
0: Spotlight Podcast. To keep up with the latest in cell and gene therapy and to follow us on our mission to manufacture brighter futures for patients, head to the show notes to follow us on social media or visit oribiotech.com.